The words we heard at the beginning of our service and taken from um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, which says, Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, turn from our earthly ways to our heavenly ways, about turn. I wonder how many of us can remember the old days, only relatively speaking, of course. I'm not going back to Jesus' time. We, can't, we might be pretty old. We're not quite as old as that. But even if you go back 30, 40, 50 years, do you remember the time when we had pews, and certainly in my church at home, there were these pew reservations. This is Mr. and Mrs. Smith's seat. And gosh, if you sat there, poof, you know, the balloon really went up. Or this is Mr. and Mrs. Brown's seat. The church, in fact, held 800 uh, worshippers. There were never more than about 200 at the very most. So there were plenty of spare seats. But nevertheless, you, know, you had to know where you were. Did any ladies then ever come to church without a hat? Oh, I think you'd agree, no, a hat was compulsory. I remember my paternal grandfather telling me, I, I was too young to observe it, but I remember him telling me that when he was the communion steward, he had to wear morning dress. And oh, very smart. Yes, you know, right turn, left turn, etc., etc. Those days, friends, clearly are largely gone. But I wonder when we hear that Jesus first preached um, in a synagogue, I wonder what was that service actually like? Was it a bit like we possibly remember 50 years ago? Was it like today? Well, I think the first thing, there were lots of rules about the Sabbath. We all remember, no doubt, that on the Sabbath you weren't supposed to work. Well, what did that mean? What did work actually entail? And the first message was, you mustn't travel. Well, what does travel mean? And somebody had to work it out. You couldn't go, apparently, more than 2,000 cubits, about 1,000 yards. Otherwise, you were breaking the law or you mustn't carry things. The weight you mustn't carry beyond was the weight of wine in a goblet. You carried a weight more than that. And so it went on and on. To some extent, perhaps, some rather daft ideas. But nevertheless, you did your best to keep to them. And when you went to worship, you were told in the synagogue, very definitely, these are the rules, and you jolly well stick to them. Synagogues were very different, obviously, in those days from what I assume they are today. They were bound, they were teaching institutions, but they were bound by the rules and regulations, all, I should think, very formal without any doubt at all. I understand there was no professional leader, no minister, no Keith, if you like. Um, they all had to come in, and the leader, a chap called the ruler, I don't think that's beyond doubt, you know, he, the ruler and the rules and so on. When you came in, the ruler might say to you, well, I'd like you to take the service this morning. Crumbs, you know, fancy walking in and being told, in our case, at 10 o'clock, you're taking the service. No, no, no warning, apparently, as far as I can understand it. I don't know whether you find the same, but every time when I try to find out about synagogues in the time of Jesus, every time you looked up a different book or a different verse or a different whatever, 
you've got a different story, so I'm never quite sure what the truth actually is, but they were obviously very formal times indeed. And the service comprised, so I understand, um, very simple, there would be a long prayer, then there would be a reading, and then what they called an exposition, a sort of discussion, a talk about it. And you had to then make sure when you went out, you followed um, that rule. Notice no music. Sorry, music group, but you're not wanted anymore, you know? Who said hooray? <laughs> no, I, I gather that the only music was perhaps some quiet music during the prayer. It was said, how true, I don't know, that um, you could remember the prayers better and understand them better if there was gentle music in the background. Now, whether that's, I don't know how many people think that's true or not, but that apparently was the case. If you wanted what we might call a service, you'd have to go to the temple. There was only one temple around, but there were large numbers of synagogues because I'm not saying they were all just of 10 people, but apparently one of the rules was if you have 10 people gathered together, that must be a synagogue. So they were darted all over the place. But they were very formal places, no doubt um, at all. Now, as we've said two or three times, and we're all well aware, Jesus preached first in the synagogue. Probably, think, people thought, crumbs, what's this? This is not the usual sort of instruction we have, not the formal rules. He, he's speaking with personal authority. He speaks the word of God about the love of God and how God cares for you and me and everybody else. Gosh, isn't it different? And we understand that to begin with, that was welcome, that was good, this was something more exciting than the wretched rules that keep on being repeated and so on. This was something alive, something we could depend upon, something exciting, something we want to take part in, and very different. But of course, as we know, eventually, Jesus was not allowed to go into the synagogues. But it seems that not only was he not allowed to, and therefore perhaps he tended more to want to go to preach on the beach, maybe. And you remember how he asked Simon and uh, uh, Andrew to take him out in a boat. And he just was offshore, I don't know, 50 yards or whatever, and then he preached. This enabled him to put across his message in, I think, perhaps a rather more friendly environment than the very formal um, synagogue. But as we read, uh, it's actually in verse 12 of the reading that uh, Bettina read to us, um, he heard about the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Now, again, we're not quite sure. Um, I don't know how Simon views this, but it's said that uh, Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. I think technically weren't they second cousins because it was their mothers who were cousins. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, the mother of Baptist, they were the cousins, so I think the next generation down, I think, are called second cousins. I stand corrected, but certainly they were close in age, and we understand they probably lived fairly close to each other. So you could see their mothers pushing them down the high street in the prams, and they, they were jolly, they were neighbours and friends and so on. So when Jesus heard about the imprisonment of 
Baptist, he was clearly very concerned. It was his second cousin, his friend. Baptist came to be imprisoned because, you may recall, on the throne at the time was young Herod. And young Herod had an eye for the women, particularly Herodias, the wife of his elder brother Philip. And he wooed Herodias and eventually married her. And Baptist said, you don't do that. You don't fall in love with, with the wife of your elder brother. It is not cricket. You mustn't do that. Well, needless to say, Herod didn't like being criticized and thought, I'm going to kill Baptist. But he hadn't got the courage, if that's the right word, to do that. He was afraid of what other people would say. So he flung him in prison. And that's what, of course, very quickly came to Jesus' ears. The rest of that story, of course, about um, uh, Baptist, uh, and do read it. Again, it's, it's an exciting story. It's a good, thrilling story, so long as you're not involved, of course, um, is in um, Matthew 14. And this is where you recall that there was a party for Herod. I'm not sure how old he was at the time, but clearly um, he'd married Herodias and it was the party to um, congratulate him on his birthday. And he got this girl to stand and, and a dance, Salome, if you recall. And Salome had this erotic dance. and Oh, the king was absolutely beside himself. He, he was thoroughly enjoying this. And at the end of the dance, he said to Salome, give you anything you like, up to half my kingdom. You have half my land. You dance so beautifully, my dear. Oh, come on. Egged on by her mother, um, Herodias, she said, don't want any land. I want Baptist's head on a platter. You can imagine Herod thought, crumbs, what am I going to do about that? And if he did nothing, he would have, I guess he thought, be seen to be very weak and wouldn't go well with his sub subjects. So he thought, better do that. So he gave the orders, and in came someone, apparently, with the head on a platter, and sure enough, must have made the party go with a swing, mustn't it, to have this head, I guess. But then, obviously, as we know, it was because Jesus heard about the um, imprisonment of Baptist, he thought he must up his game, I guess, um, in his ministry. He must preach more and get the message across. And therefore, I'd better have some disciples. And this is, again, the second part of our reading Bettina read to us earlier of how he calls the first disciples. It's fascinating. If you read the Gospels uh, and you read each of their accounts of calling of the first disciples, not surprisingly, really, the accounts are slightly different, particularly that in Luke chapter 5. But do read them later this afternoon if you want to compare them. But the story, of course, is broadly the same. And we read that Jesus was walking along the beach and, ah, um, oh, Simon Peter and Andrew, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately got up and followed Jesus. And then he saw two others, James and John, brothers, sitting in their boat with Zebedee, their father. Their father, Zebedee, owned a fish distribution business, and so one assumes that James and John were pretty well known um, in the area. And again, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Got up immediately and followed Jesus. You think, well, that's jolly good, but then the more you think about that, 
perhaps the more questions come to your mind. Why did Jesus choose fishermen? Yeah, true, he couldn't choose car mechanics or computer programs. Of course, they weren't around in Jesus' time, obviously. But he could have chosen medical people. He could have chosen lawyers. He could have chosen tax collectors, uh, all sorts of others. And some of the disciples certainly did have these professions. But he meant initially for fishermen. You think, I wonder why fishermen? Um, they were ordinary people. Now, perhaps that's quite significant. Maybe ordinary like some of us. What sort of qualities are there of a fisherman? Now, if you have been, I haven't been to the Sea of Galilee. Has anybody been to the Sea of Galilee? Do you? Ah, so some have. I think you will agree that the Sea of Galilee, it's about 13 miles, I understand, north to south, and about eight miles east to west, um, 600 feet below sea level. And that means it's subject to, as we know from biblical stories, um, sudden, enormous storms. Boats rock up and down. The fishermen are, when they're fishing, obviously in some difficulty. The boat might sink and so on and so on. So they had to be very brave. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus chose them. They had to think of alternate bait for different fish. I'm no fisherman whatsoever, but I gather to catch different fish, you need different baits or different types of nets, which they certainly had in Jesus' time. We perhaps need different ways of, I use the word in inverted commas, catching people, making disciples of people, don't we? So yes, there were certain qualities of fishermen which perhaps made them attractive to Jesus. Probably above all, because we know again from many biblical stories of how the fishermen would come in fairly frequently at the end of a night's fishing, not having caught a thing. Mustn't that have been frustrating? How could they sit all night on their boats, going up and down, feeling seasick perhaps, and then not caught anything? In the old days, many years ago, um, I studied maths and um, quite enjoyed the subject, I have to confess. Um, and there's a very well-known mathematical story about Fermat's last theorem. Some of you may have heard about it. Pierre de Fermat was a very brilliant uh, amateur mathematician, and he produced lots of theorems, all of which were proved without any doubt, no problem, no difficulty. They were right. On his deathbed... I've got a lovely theorem here, look, I, I, I can't... I, and he passed away. And this was in the early 1600s, and for 300 years or so, the world's best mathematicians tried to prove Fermat's last theorem. None of them could. If I'd stood here about 20 years ago, I would have said, and it still hasn't been proved, but since then, a chap called Andrew Wilds, a brilliant mathematician at Cambridge, he eventually solved Fermat's last theorem. Great thick 400-page tome. I couldn't follow after about the second paragraph of the first page. I mean, it was so... It's a new branch of mathematics. He devoted his life. He persisted. Other people thought he was absolutely mad, but he, he persisted, and he eventually solved Fermat's last theorem. I guess fishermen have the same quality... Do we as Christians have the same quality? Are we prepared to go on and on 
perhaps trying to convince someone, persuade them to come to church or whatever it is. I wonder whether we've got that um, tenacity to just persist. It's certainly something, again, which I'm sure Jesus saw in these, in these fishermen. The other interesting thing about Jesus calling the two sets of brothers, isn't it, is that we notice they not only did they get up and follow Jesus, but they did so immediately, no messing around, no, oh, I'm just go home first and check the cat's fed or something. No, no, um, they jumped up. If someone came to you on your way home and said, I've got a new religion, will you follow me? You wouldn't get up and say, oh, yes, I'm coming, yes, right. You'd, you'd doubt, you'd query, you'd want to know what it was all about, wouldn't you? So presumably, we must assume surely that the, Jesus had met them before. Maybe they'd attended some of his teachings before. Maybe Jesus knew them before. We don't know, but obviously there'd been some interaction um, before. They jumped up and immediately followed him. And after all, what was he promising them? What was Jesus promising these disciples? It wasn't fame, it wasn't finance, it wasn't money, certainly. It, it wasn't a, an easy, you know, easy life, don't worry, everything's going to be okay now, chaps. It was almost exactly the opposite of all these things. He was offering them a challenge, offering them a task. And when you think about it, friends, for each of us, okay, whether we jumped up immediately at an appropriate time in our lives or what, I don't know, of course, we were, we're all different. But I guess that we need to look very carefully, frequently, what exactly, what exactly are we being asked to do? I'm not going to any detail because I think that's where Keith will, as it were, follow on the story next week. Um, but let me just finish by saying two things. The first is that if you think about it for a moment, and you think, well, mm, I, w I wonder what Jesus really wants us to do. Perhaps two things come to mind. The first is, what is the greatest commandment? Well, the greatest commandment, we all remember, I'm sure, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Now I wonder, when Jesus then added, the two are linked. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength unless you're loving, loving your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is everybody in need. I wonder, friends, whether you and I, whether as a church, are we loving God in the way that we should be? Or the second thing um, that comes to mind, you remember Jesus saying very clearly, make disciples. Are you, am I, making disciples? No doubt Keith will follow on from that next week um, as to what our task really is. But for the moment, let's realize that certainly God called Jesus himself. Jesus called the disciples in a way in which no doubt he's calling us, and we must always pay serious attention to what we believe is our task. Amen.